these are the last words of David, the inspired utterance of David, son of Jesse, the utterance of the man exalted by the Most High, the man anointed by the God of Jacob, the hero of Israel's songs. The Spirit of the Lord spoke through me. His word was on my tongue. The God of Israel spoke. The rock of Israel said to me, when one rules over people in righteousness, when he rules in the fear of God, he's like the light of morning at sunrise on a cloudless morning, like the brightness after rain that brings grass from the earth. If my house were not right with God, surely he would not have made with me an everlasting covenant arranged and secured in every part. Surely he would not bring to fruition my salvation and grant me my every desire. But evil men are all to be cast aside like thorns, which are not gathered with a hand. Whoever touches thorns uses a tool of iron or the shaft of a spear. They are burned up where they lie. Okay, I wonder what comes into your mind when you think of the word authority. How do you respond to authority? Now, for me, I'm an oldest child, so I'm driven mostly by a sense of duty mixed with guilt, lots of guilt, mixed also with self-righteousness. And if you kind of wonder how you can have guilt and self-righteousness, whether that really is a thing in combination, it, re it really is, trust me, it really is. You might know what I'm talking about if you're an oldest sibling yourself. You know, I was always very compliant growing up. You know, I, d I was a good boy. I'd do what my parents told me to do. I'd do what my teachers told me to do. Uh, my younger sister, though, she was, a, she was a little bit more rebellious than I was, not quite as compliant, and that would make me quite angry. So the one time I remember swearing in front of my parents when I was younger was a time when my sister was being stroppy and rude to my mum, and I just couldn't believe that she had the audacity to speak to my uh, mum like that. I was just like, how can she do this? How could she do it? I was enraged. After all, I behaved. You've got to keep the rules, haven't you? That's how it works. But that was me back then. Compliance mixed with a healthy dose or an unhealthy dose of self-righteousness. But what about you? How do you respond to authority? Many people today are suspicious of authority. Now, this might be due to a kind of naturally rebellious nature, or it might be that you've seen what happens when authority is put in the wrong hands. We talk about authoritarians, don't we? Um, people who enforce a strict obedience and constrain us. We're not free when these people are in power. Many people are concerned with the power that comes from being in authority. The powerful can be seen as untrustworthy. There's a powerful wind at the moment at work <laughs> above us. How do you respond to authority? Well, as we come to this final sermon in the series on the life of David, as we come to the end, we meet David at the end of his life, and he is giving what is described as his final words. And in these final words, he paints a picture of ultimate authority. Authority that far from being oppressive is actually life-giving. Authority that is absolutely necessary for us as human beings to thrive. And this is the authority that's at the heart of all reality. And so if we want to live rightly in this world, 
And if we want to flourish, we need to see what this authority is. We need to see how it functions so that we can relate to it correctly. So let's look at this passage together. Firstly, let's look at the king's blessing. The king's blessing. So here at the end of his life, we meet David. And he's saying, it says, verse 1, his last Words. Now, these are probably not his actual last words before he died. Think of it more as his last uh, will and testament, his, his final official words. These are the words that kind of sum up everything that David is about. And they have huge importance. Just look down at verses 2 and 3. We'll see that this is a divine message. Verse 2 tells us that the Spirit of God himself is speaking through David. And verse 3 tells us that the God of Israel has told him the message. So God is speaking to David, and he's speaking through David. So this must be very important. Well, what then is the core of this message? What um, What is it all about? What is he trying to say? Well, the core is in verse 3 to 4. Read it with me. When one rules over people in righteousness, when he rules in the fear of God, he is like the light of morning at sunrise on a cloudless morning, like the brightness after rain that brings grass from the earth. So David is articulating a principle here about the effect that a ruler can have. That is this. A good king is a blessing to his people. Well, what makes a good king? Well, first, we see that they rule in righteousness. That is, that they are committed to justice. A good ruler has integrity. They treat all their people with the same standard, regardless of who they are. Whether they have power or not. Whether they have riches or not. Good kings won't take bribes. They won't show partiality to those who can bankroll their administration. They will have concern for the poor. They will speak up for the vulnerable and the oppressed. They will reward the good and punish the evil wherever it is found and in whomever it is found. There are no double standards with this king. So good kings use their kingship not to revel in their own glory and power, but to work for the good of their people. They are righteous. And secondly, a good king rules in fear of God. Their rule is grounded in the fact that they know God. Now, to fear God doesn't mean to be terrified of him. It's not like the fear that a child would have of monsters under the bed. Fear here means reverence. It means that you realize how awesome God is and that you let that be a control of your actions. It will affect how you behave. And this is crucial for a king to be just, that he fears God. Because if he fears God, then he will not fear those who have power or with money, those who may influence his judgments in their favor. He fears God. Well, that's a good king. Well, what does it mean for him to be a blessing then? Look at verse 4. And we'll see some weather that I think we wish we all had right now. Verse 4, David compares a good king to the sun that rises in the morning. The sun paints the landscape in light and drives the shadows away. Have you ever, um, have you ever stayed up all night to see a sunrise? 
you've been in the dark, you see that glimmer of light fill the sky. It's a glorious thing, isn't it? Now, David says that authority, when used rightly, is like that. It's like a sun that rises and warms us. It's like heat and light without a cloud in the sky. It's like warmth after the rain, it says, that causes grass and vegetation to grow. This is a picture of flourishing. And in this analogy, the king's people are like grass. Okay, so when, when a good king, when you get a good king, the people will flourish. They grow. Because this king will be just. He won't um, tread down on, on the poor uh, or those who are vulnerable. People are not held back under this kind of authority. They, they flourish under it. And all this happens to a people, David says, when their king fears God. Now, all this talk of kings may seem a little bit distant to 21st century city dwellers in Manchester. After all, we don't live in the Middle Ages, do we? Or in Middle Earth, we don't go around saying, my liege, to people. That's not, that's not our life, is it? But we all know what it means to thrive or to struggle under authority. Now, the most modern-day authority closest to the king in this passage would probably be a prime minister or a politician or a world leader. But I want us to think a little bit more personally than that. Think about your parents. Think about your supervisor at work, your church leaders. Now, you'll know that it makes a big difference whether these leaders are righteous or not. Now, I've had the fortune of being blessed with good managers in all my jobs. And I'm not just saying that because I work for this church and I'm being recorded. It is actually true. In my previous job, I had a number of managers. One of them, his strength really was that he pushed me. Not physically, that would be a disciplinary issue. But in my professional development, I was working there as a graphic designer. I spent most of my days in front of a big monitor with earphones in, blocked off from the west of the world. But my boss was invested in me and he encouraged me to start running training for other people in the company, to train other people in the business, design skills. He got me to run workshops. I had to prepare them. I had to deliver them. And it was something that I fell out of my depth with at first. And it's something I never would have chosen for myself. My horizons were quite narrow, I suppose. But he invested in me. And he used his authority to push me forward in my development so that I would flourish in my role. Now, he wasn't a Christian. He didn't fear God. I wonder what he would have been like as a manager if he did, perhaps even better. That's a good boss. Bad boss, on the other hand, can make going to work a nightmare. I'm sure some of you will know what that's like. You get abusive bosses sometimes, don't you? Managers who always want everything yesterday and are always having a go at you. Supervisors who will throw you under the bus to save their own skin if targets aren't being met. Weak managers who don't want any bother and so they won't stand up for you when you are struggling. You don't blossom under these kind of leaders, do you? In fact, you may more feel like you wilt. And let's get even more personal. What about your parents? 
Is there a more profound relationship in life than the one between ourselves and our mum and dad? You know, parents are authority figures with huge power to shape us. Some of us have excellent relationships with our parents, and we owe our maturity, our level-headedness, um, our character to their love and care and leadership. Others of us will have more difficult relationships with our parents. And if our parents don't exercise their authority well, well, great harm can be caused. And this is reflected in just how broken our society's relationships are uh, parentally. In Australia, there's a psychologist and parent educator called Steve Biddulph, and he once said in a seminar that if you imagine a room with 100 Australian men, in that room, 33 of them will not have spoken to their father in years, perhaps decades. Another 33 will speak to their fathers, but it tends to end badly. Um, words are said, arguments are had, people leave, doors are slammed. And the last 33, well, they would say they have an okay relationship with their father. They, they see him regularly, they catch up once a week for dinner. But that will be out of a sense of duty. It won't be because of a warm relationship. Bidolph said this, in a room full of 100 Australian men, perhaps only one will be able to say that they have a warm, functional relationship with their father. Now that's Australia. That's just men and fathers. I don't know how that relates over here and with women and daughters and mothers. But we do know that there's a lot of parent-child brokenness here as well. And some of that will be because our parents didn't exercise their authority justly. So whether it's parents, whether it's managers, whether it's any sort of leaders in our lives, I'm sure all of us in some way have experienced authority figures who weren't like the sun who shone on us. They didn't cause us to grow. Perhaps they were more like a cloud who covered us in shadow. And don't we wish that those in authority would use their rule righteously, that they would do so in fear of God and work to help those under them flourish? Now, as a sidebar, for those of us with any form of authority, this should give us pause for thought, shouldn't it? Parents, life group leaders, those in management positions at work, those in Christian union leadership. Do you exercise your authority righteously in fear of God? Are others blossoming under your, under your leadership? It's worth thinking about. Authority, according to the Bible, needs to be exercised in a godly way. And when it is, people are blessed. Now just think about this with me for a second. We know the impact of authority in our lives. We've just spoken on it. But what if there is an ultimate authority? A ruler who has personal authority over all our lives. I'm not sure what everyone in this room believes. There are a lot of Christians here, obviously, but there'll be people with various views on faith and life. Maybe you think that the highest authority in your life is yourself. But just imagine, if there is an authority higher than yourself, if there is a higher authority who is personal, don't we want them to be righteous? 
Wouldn't we want this authority to be used in a way that makes us blossom and not wilt? Then we want the king's blessing. Secondly, then, the king's identity. We've seen this idealistic picture of a good ruler, but who exactly does David have in mind? Is he speaking of anyone specifically? Well, if you look at the passage, it seems clear that David sees himself as the subject of this to some degree. He is, after all, Israel's king. He will be come to thought of as Israel's greatest king. And these are his final words. If you look at verse 1, we kind of get David's biography in miniature. So he's referred to as the son of Jesse, which reminds us of his humble beginnings. David doesn't doesn't come from... uh, a particularly prestigious line. His dad's a fairly random guy. He's from a backwater town, Bethlehem. And even David himself, you know, he was plucked from obscurity. He wasn't even the first choice of Jesse's sons to be king. And yet David is the ruler. He was to be the ruler. It says in verse 1 that he was exalted by the Most High. He was raised up by God, just like that sunrise In verse 4, he was anointed king, and eventually, after a turbulent period where he was on the run from Saul, he took the throne. It says in verse 1 that he became the hero of Israel's songs. He wrote many of the Psalms, as we know, and these are songs that would lead the entire nation in praise and worship of God. Surely, in many ways, David, David was a righteous king. But he seems to also extend this picture beyond himself to his family. So look down at verse 5 with me. It says this, If my house were not right with God, surely he would not have made with me an everlasting covenant, arranged and secured in every part. Surely he would not bring to fruition my salvation and grant me my every desire. Now the original language here in verse 5 is a bit tricky to translate, but the main point is this. God has blessed David, and he's blessed his house, his family. David mentions the salvation and the desires that God has given him. In other words, David has flourished. So just as a good king causes his people to flourish, God has caused David and his family to flourish. And the centerpiece here is this everlasting covenant. Do you notice that term? Everlasting covenant in verse 5. And that is a promise, a promise that God has given him. Now, if you were here a few months ago, we looked at this promise. It's in 2 Samuel 7. No need to turn there, but I'll just quickly explain it. So you may remember the story. David is really passionate about honoring God, and he wants to build him a temple. And so he says to, to the Lord, I am going to build you a house. And God says to David, no, I'm going to build you a house. You can imagine David thinking, okay, sounds great. Now by house, what God means here is his family, his descendants. God promises David that he will have a son. He will always have a son whose um, reign is over all, um, for all time. His kingdom will be established forever. He will always be on the throne. And we saw then that this, this rule this son, this king promise is only fulfilled a thousand years after it was said. When in David's hometown of Bethlehem, the Lord Jesus comes to earth. 
He is David's son. He's a direct descendant of David. He comes from his tribe, Judah. But not only is Jesus human, the scripture says that he is divine as well. So he's not just the son of David. He is the son of his father in heaven. And as the divine king, Jesus is the one who can only truly fulfill the promise in that covenant and truly fulfill what we read here in 2 Samuel 23. See, after Jesus' life and death and resurrection, the Bible gives us this picture of him sitting at the right hand of his father in heaven, which is a picture of rule. It's a picture of authority. And right now, the Bible claims Jesus is on the throne. And he's not just the king of one Middle Eastern nation. He's the king of the whole world. We're told he rules the entire cosmos. The claims are staggering here. The Bible says that Jesus continually governs everything and existence. Everything. The only reason the world keeps turning, the only reason that the um, laws of physics stay continuous, the only reason your heart is beating right now is because the Lord Jesus is upholding it and allowing it to continue. Now, if that is true... That is a lot of authority, isn't it? That's a lot of authority. And you'd better hope that someone with that much authority is righteous. You better hope that you can trust someone with that much authority. And when it comes to our politicians today, we've come to expect character issues, haven't we? It seems like every politician we have seems to come free with a bonus scandal. Whether it's some affair they've had, some involvement in a cover-up, some bare-faced lie they've told the public. That's just how the way, the way things are these days. And this is across the political spectrum, by the way. I'm not having a pop at any particular views. And the thing is, we're kind of not surprised anymore by this. And some voters kind of double down on it. They, they will um, claim that character almost doesn't matter. I'm starting to hear this phrase a lot. Well, I voted for a president or a prime minister. I didn't vote for a pastor. The bar seems to have got so low that integrity in a leader has just become a nice to have. Well, we don't have to lower the bar for the Lord Jesus. Scripture says that he is good and trustworthy for all his authority. You know, no tabloid newspaper is going to be able to dig dirt on Jesus Christ. He is the epitome of justice and integrity. And you see this when you read the Gospels. You see that there is a one-to-one -one correspondence between what Jesus practices and what Jesus preaches. He told people to love their neighbors, and he did it. He told people to show kindness to the poor, and he did that himself. He spent his time with them. He had a consistency to his life that is frankly intimidating. But isn't that a relief? Isn't it a relief to know that the one at the helm of reality is like this, that he's righteous, that he's consistent? You know, Jesus will never take a bribe. Jesus will never exploit the weak. He'll never ignore those who are in need. Because that's not what he's like. Jesus is the righteous ruler who fears God. You know, he has always done the will of his father. And he exercises his authority in perfect 
justice. And you know, and you see this in the fact that his blessings are open to all people. All people. It doesn't matter whether you are rich or poor. It doesn't matter whether you feel part of the in crowd or you feel out there on the sidelines, isolated from everyone else. It doesn't matter whether you feel in control of your life or whether it feels like at any point everything could just come tumbling down. Whoever you are, the Lord Jesus is full of compassion and he offers himself and his blessings to you because he's righteous. And you know what? Jesus' people, they, they blossom under his rule. They are like the grass that grow. I've been at this church for about six or seven years. And I've known some people in this room a lot longer than six or seven years. And you know what? In the time that I have known people here and been at this church, I have seen members of this church grow and blossom like grass warmed by the sun after the rain. I've seen it. I've seen the proud become more humble. I've seen the prickly become more gentle. I've seen the self-obsessed become more servant-hearted. I've seen people here grow in their love and joy in the Lord Jesus. I've seen them grow in their endurance through difficult circumstances and seeing them increasingly hope, not in what is here on this earth, but in what is eternal. I've seen those who hated the Bible come to cherish it and love it. All in this church, I've seen it. And sometimes that change has been quick and radical. Oftentimes it's been slow and steady. But all of this ultimately has been down to the rule of Jesus in this community. Through his word and through his spirit, he is bringing growth to his people. Yes, there is plenty of sin and there's plenty of brokenness. But nevertheless, Jesus is blessing us. He is. He's blessing us. And if you don't believe me, Christian friend, have a think about what you were like two, five, even ten years ago. Whenever I think about what I was like of any amount of time in the past, I kind of cringe. I think, oh man, what an idiot. Maybe you're like me. But consider how Jesus has matured you. Now, I'm not talking about circumstances. I'm not talking about flourishing in ways that the world may see it. Life may be harder now for you than it was years ago. So I'm not talking about material flourishing. There's the sorts of things that when it comes to the time scale of eternity, they're going to vanish like really quickly. I'm talking about the things that will last long into eternity. Christian character, endurance, capacity for service, even salvation itself. Some of you were not Christians three years ago. These are things worth thinking on and reflecting on how Jesus' rule has blessed you. Oh, and by the way, you know, if you have noticed growth in someone else, if you've noticed how others have blossomed in your community, maybe in your life group or in your student group or whatever, why don't you go and tell them this week? Why don't you go and encourage them about how you've seen their character grow and mature under Jesus' rule? Jesus is the true king. He rules, and his people flourish. They flourish. Well, that's in the church, but what about the rest of the world? If the Lord Jesus is king over all, then 
it might feel like he's asleep at the wheel because there's a lot of chaos and difficulty in our world now. What is, how does Jesus' authority relate to that? Well, finally then, we've seen the king's blessings, we've seen the king's identity. Let's think about the king's judgment. Look down with me at verses 6 to 7. But evil men are all to be cast aside like thorns, which are not gathered with the hand. Whoever touches thorns uses a tool of iron or the shaft of a spear. They are burned up where they lie. Well, those are a couple of intense verses to end a sermon on, aren't they? Let alone a sermon series. But here we go. You know, they are necessary because they illustrate an important principle. You know, in order to maintain a just kingdom, a just society, evil needs to be dealt with. You will never have a righteous society where people can truly flourish if evil is not constrained. Because the job of all authority is to stop anything that might compromise a just rule. Evil will compromise people's ability to flourish. We've seen in this passage that a kingdom of justice is like the sun that gives um, the grass the opportunity to grow. But here David kind of extends the analogy. Evil, Evil people are not like grass, they are like thorns. And anyone here who likes gardening will know to maintain your garden means getting rid of the weeds. And the thing about thorns is that you can't treat them like other plants. You can't pick them up, otherwise you'll get hurt. You need to dig them up or burn them. And in the same way, evil is serious. And it needs to be dealt with seriously. Now, as king of Israel, David knew this firsthand. Looking back over his life, in order to protect his people and his kingdom, he had had to get his hands dirty at numerous points. He had had his fair share of thorns in his life, both in the kingdom and out of it. And he had uh, had to deal with them. He'd fought Philistine armies. He'd defeated Goliath. He'd seen off pirates and raiders who tried to terrorize his people. But he'd also had to deal with threats from within the kingdom, not just without. Last week, we saw the story of Absalom, didn't we? David's own son, who plotted to kill his father and take over the kingdom. He was just one of a number of rebels that needed to be subdued under David's kingship. But that's part of the job. Rulers are there to bless their people, but they must also deal with evil. And this is true in Jesus' kingdom. As we've seen, he is king over all the world. As God, he actually made the world. He made us all. This planet is his. It's got his name tag on it. It belongs to him. And yes, at the moment, this world is still chaotic, but he has promised that he will fully establish his reign in the future. Jesus will set the world to rights. He will eradicate all evil. No more human trafficking. No more exploitation of the poor. No more of the powerful getting away with crimes and sins. There is an eternal future coming where there will only be sun. There will be no shadow. Suffering and evil will be gone. And Jesus will remove all that would compromise his kingdom of righteousness. That is good news. That's good news. But it means justice for the guilty 
and those who commit evil will be cast aside. Now, there's a bit of a stone in the shoe here if you kind of read the passage, something that doesn't quite add up. Because David seems very sure he's going to be blessed by God. You notice that? Supremely confident. Verse 5, he's assured of his salvation. He has confidence that his house is right with God. But hold on a minute. This is David we're talking about. I mean, can he really stand as one outside of the camp of evildoers? Can he really sort of define himself other than other than as, as a wicked person himself. We all know his track record. We know the Bathsheba episode well now, don't we? You know, this is a man who used his authority to commit adultery with the wife of one of his soldiers. He used his authority to try and cover it up and then used his authority to murder him. I mean, is this man right with God? Perhaps the same could be asked of us. We may not have done what David did, but if life is simply a question of separating the good from the bad, are we sure that we're going to end up on the right side? I don't know if you've heard of the writer Alexander Solzhenitsyn. He's got a name even harder for me to spell than to pronounce. He was a Russian writer. He won the Nobel Prize for Literature in 1970. And before then, he had spent eight years in a Soviet labor camp called a gulag. He was sent there for criticizing Joseph Stalin. And whilst he was there, he experienced firsthand all the cruelty of communist imprisonment. But not just the cruelty of communism, but the cruelty of humanity. He saw it in himself as well as in his imprisoners. He said this in one of his books. You know, if only there were evil people somewhere committing evil deeds that we could just separate from the rest of us and destroy them. But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. And who is willing to destroy a piece of his own heart? Solzhenitsyn knew what the Bible knows, that humanity is not really divided into two groups, thorns and not thorns, and if we're honest, in our more reflective moments, we can see the thorniness in all our hearts. You know, Jesus' standards are clear to love God with all our heart and to love our neighbor as ourselves. Who of us could really say that we've done that? Who of us could say that we haven't been selfish, that we haven't conveniently ignored Jesus' commands when it didn't suit our agenda? Who of us could say that we've had authority that when we've had authority, we've never exercised it wrongly. Who could say that? Are we not in danger of being cast aside like thorns too? Cast out from Jesus' kingdom forever? Surely David was, if anyone. And yet here he is, with all the confidence that it would suggest that he's sure of his place with God. How so? How can that be? Well, this is where we see a whole new facet to authority. We've talked about authority, haven't we? It's blessings, um, it's power and control. But here under Jesus' authority, we see goodness and even sacrifice. You see, Jesus, when he sees the plight of humanity, 
with evil in their hearts, he sees us, he sees that we are thorns and he sees that we are deserved to be punished. But filled with love, he looks at us and he says this, he says, let them not be cast aside. Let them not be punished. I will be punished. I will be cast aside in their place. And that's what he did. You know, the Lord Jesus, the greatest authority in all reality, came to earth and he chose the cross. He died the death of an evildoer. He took on a crown of thorns. Look at verse 7. He had a spear thrust into his side. All our evil was laid on this king so we could go free. The king himself became as a thorn to be destroyed and cast aside so that we could be welcomed in. The light of the world, the sun in the sky, bore darkness in our place. Three three days later, he rose again and he rules from on high. And one day he will return to fully bring in his kingdom. Evil will be done done away with forever and the wicked dealt with. But in the meantime, in this kind of messy period of history, there is an amnesty. For those that come to him, he forgives them and he welcomes with open arms. You know, he can turn thorns into flourishing grass. Now that is a game changer when it comes to thinking about authority, isn't it? You know, we're all used to authority that punishes we can kind of comprehend the idea of authority that blesses, even if we haven't experienced it ourselves. But authority that sacrifices, is that in our definition of authority? Authority that just doesn't operate by a rule of law, but by a rule of compassion as well. It's extraordinary. But this is what true authority, ultimate authority is. Jesus Christ, both righteous and compassionate, just and sacrificial, giving his own blood in place of those under his authority, even those who deserve to be cast out as thorns. You know, I don't know what you think of authority. I don't know how you respond to it, whether you embrace it or whether you distrust it. Maybe you're suspicious of it because you've only ever seen it used wrongly. Perhaps you believe that absolute power can only ever corrupt absolutely. Well, if that's you, perhaps Jesus will change your mind. Here is a king who is just and righteous, who fears God and deals with evil, and yet at the same time dies for his enemies and offers forgiveness and hope to even the darkest thorns. You know, thorns can flourish as well if they come to Jesus. This is the authority that David knew. You can kind of imagine him in his old age, can't you? Looking back over a full life, those early years looking after the sheep, the excitement of being anointed by Samuel, the depression of living life on the run from Saul. He'd remember his eventual ascent to the throne, his military victories, those years of peace and prosperity. The Lord had brought him so far. And yet he was a self-aware man, We know that, reading the Psalms. I'm sure he would have looked back on his life also with a measure of regret. 
the sins that he'd committed, the wrong he'd done that would impact not just him, but his entire family, his entire nation. And yet here is a man in his final words, sure of salvation, sure of hope, of forgiveness, even of flourishing seemingly beyond his earthly years. He knew this because he knew a greater authority than his had welcomed him. That Jesus had welcomed him despite his sin and would be the source of his hope and joy forever. That's what Jesus gave David. And that's what he offers to you and me as well. Let's pray, shall we? Father God, we are humbled by just the gift of your son Jesus. We are so grateful that for someone who has all that authority, he exercises it justly and righteously. That he is compassionate. Lord, that we can flourish under him even as those who don't deserve it. Lord God, help us, whatever our views on authority are generally, to see how beautiful the authority of the Lord Jesus is. Help us to come to him, whether for the first time or for the thousandth time. Lord, we thank you for him. We thank you that we can flourish in his kingdom. And Lord, for those of us who have authority ourselves, help us to mirror the authority that Jesus shows. Help us to be righteous. Help us to fear you. Help us to work for the blossoming of those who are under us so that you would be given glory. In Jesus' name, amen.